If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, welcome. We always anticipate and expect for non-Christians to be among us. Paul, who lived in the first century, said in 1 Corinthians 14 that Christians should expect non-believers to be present when we gather for worship. I would suppose that at some point in your life you've been turned off by Christians and said something like, I'm not a Christian because of Christians. Whenever I study to preach a passage, I always ask this question. Why do non-Christians need this text? Some of you have been in churches before and you're not used to being addressed until the very end when the pastor says, you should get saved now. But my non-Christian friend, I've developed a philosophy where I do not speak about you, but I speak to you. I do not wait to speak to you at the end of the sermon, but try to do it at the beginning. I want you to see from the outset why you desperately need this text. Some of you work with people who say they are Christians, but surf the phone all day and do not do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Some of you hang out with people who say they are Christians, but they get drunker than you on the weekends. Some of you hang out with people who say they are Christians. They are married, they go to church on Sunday, but have a side thing going on over here with someone that isn't their spouse. And that is why you need this text. If you're going to reject Jesus Christ and his church, don't reject some poor representation of them. At least take an honest look at people who are saying the same thing with their lives that they're saying with their lips. In the text are three followers of Christ who give you a compelling vision of what a Christian should be. Don't reject Christ based on someone who, in the words of Bonhoeffer, embrace cheap grace. That is those who claim the name Christian but seem no different from anyone else. Take an authentic version of Christianity. Take a look at it in the life of these three men who have been radically transformed by God's saving grace in Christ. Today's verses actually come right after a section where Paul talks about the importance of living a life that's worthy of the gospel. And now he points you to three men who are living a life that's worthy of the gospel. By the way, I'm not denying my agenda. I'm not going to do a sleight of hand or a switcheroony. I intend for you to hear this, be convicted of your sin, repent, and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, if, if I could snap my fingers and make it happen right away, I would. But it takes the work of God. God often does that work while you sit under the preached word. And even as I am talking to you and looking in your faces, I am reminded that it takes the breath of God to awaken you who are dead in your sins. Why don't you just silently voice, voice to God, God, I want to be whispered to. I want to see myself as you see me, and I want to see you as I should see you. Martin Luther said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold on me. And I'm hoping this text lays hold on you. Now, that's why non-Christians need this text. Let's talk about why you Christians desperately need this text. And that's actually not easy from this particular passage. It's nothing more than a travelogue. Some of you have read a book that's a travelogue. It talks about places visited and experiences encountered by the traveler. You've probably had to drudge through some form of this in grade school where your art teacher returned from her Europe trip 
and spent the whole week showing you slides of paintings. This text is an example of one of the reasons why people push back on what we do here called expository preaching. Preaching through entire books of the Bible, not skipping over any verses. You're going to waste an entire Sunday on a travel itinerary. There's nothing valuable in a travelogue. And at first glance, verses 19 through 30 are a bit of a downer. Karl Barth said in referring to these verses, this passage contains no direct teaching. C.J. Mahaney quips, no one's favorite verse is found in this passage. John MacArthur begins this study on this section by saying to his local church, I want to take you through verses 19 to 30. It's not theological, it's not real deep or profound stuff. Now that should be all you need for some excitement about this text. You've got it. Now I want you to understand the importance of the travelogue. There is value here because there's value in anything that dropped from the lips of God. And here's a summary of the travelogue. Paul writes about how great Timothy is and why he is not sending him back to Philippi. Then he writes about how great Epaphroditus is and why he is sending him back to Philippi. Uh, Timothy calls these two men Timbo and Ephro. I'll, I'll try to refrain, but it'll probably slip out. Paul was simply alerting the church to these dynamics. Paul didn't have access to technological advances like Skype, and email, cell phones, FaceTime. The church was supported by Paul, and Paul wanted to ex- extend thanks to the church and then outline his plans. But in the nitty-gritty of those details is instruction on your travelogue. As these men traveled through life, there were things found in them because of the gospel that need to be lived out as you travel through life. Whether you ever write a book or give a slideshow, you are writing your travelogue right now. And here's what I have for you. Three men teaching you three truths for your travelogue. Traveling truth number one. Learn from Paul to write your plans in pencil. Paul called the traveling bug. He loved it. Actually, he called the gospel bug. He he didn't travel to see places and experience new adventures. He traveled because the gospel of Christ propelled him to evangelize unreached and little-reached places. You would have to be in pretty good shape to travel with Paul. You better be doing some marathons or some mountain biking. Historians have estimated that Paul traveled over 10,000 miles by foot. They've added up all of his missionary journey miles in a little Excel spreadsheet. Paul would have to traverse barren landscapes and swollen mountain streams, coastal swamps. He would ride in carriages on horseback, pulled by mules. He traveled on pirate ships and cargo ships and little john boats. He even floated on wooden planks when the ships crashed. Verse 19, he says, I hope... Notice the next four words. I hope... In the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Now notice how Paul lays out his travel plans. I hope in the Lord Jesus. Those four words are vital. Those four words are the groundwork for this point. They are not sort of slapped in or tacked on in an unthinkable way. Paul could not have deleted those four words and simply said, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. 
No, that would not be enough for Paul because everything he hoped for had been submitted to the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul never wanted to act independently of his master's desire. We today use a phrase to express the same perspective when we say, Lord willing. That's a wonderful phrase. It's, it's not cliche. It isn't a cop-out either. It's a Paul's point. It's a mental and verbal reminder to hold lightly to our agenda. Paul repeats this in verse 24. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul says, Church of Philippi, I'm hoping in the Lord to send Timothy to you. And then I'm hoping in the Lord to be right on his heels. Paul can here be observed acting in humility as he makes his travel plans under the direction of the Lord Jesus. He submits his plans to God for approval. He couches his hopes and dreams and plans in the person of Jesus Christ. I submit my travel documents to you, Lord. And you can change my flight's destinations and you can change my seat on the plane. And Paul was used to God changing his travelogue. This happened frequently in Paul's missionary endeavors. Paul wanted to go to Asia Minor, but God sent him to Europe. Paul actually promised to visit Corinth twice on a journey from Ephesus to Macedonia, but it never happened. Paul had frequently hoped to visit Rome, but was denied each time. And when he was finally allowed into Rome, it was not as a missionary as he had planned, but as a prisoner. Paul's forecast of coming events exhibit a deep awareness that Christ the Lord controls his hopes and plans. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and theologian who would be put into a concentration camp during World War II and then executed by Adolf Hitler's personal orders just three weeks before Hitler committed suicide. Bonhoeffer wrote, We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our path and canceling our plans. Christians may not want their lives crossed or interrupted, but it is part of the discipline of humility. We do not assume that our schedule is our own to manage, but allow it to be arranged by God. End quote. How do you approach your planning for the future? Your choice of college or university, your investment strategy, your spending strategy, your giving strategy, your dreams for your retirement years. If you are becoming a spiritual grown-up like Paul, you will formulate your hopes and plans with humility, always aware that Jesus, your sovereign, has the right and the wisdom to overrule your choices. And redirect your paths. I hope to have a baby next year. I hope to get a promotion. I hope to move to a new house. I hope to find someone to marry. I hope to take my business to the next level. We write our plans in pencil. God erased several of Paul's plans and writes new ones instead. Planning in pencil forces you to hold to your agenda lightly. 
I hope God writes this next statement on your heart. God's eraser is sovereign. Even when he erases your vacation, even when he erases your childhood fantasy of a white picket fence, a golden retriever, and a smiling spouse, even when he erases the dream job and that dream location with that dream salary. For some of you, God's been erasing some things in your travel log this week, and it's rocked you. When that happens, don't get bitter. Just accept what God wrote in pen. Don't get frustrated and throw your hands up. Don't give up and become lethargic and lazy. I'm never planning again. No, still be teeming with plans for the glory of God. Paul never allowed God's eraser to devastate him. He trusted God's eraser. He valued God's eraser. He planned with vigor and excitement his missionary travels, but did it with pencil because the same eraser that changed his plans changed his heart. The same eraser that scrubbed out his pencil scrubbed out his sin. If you can trust your soul to this eraser, then you can trust your travelogue to this eraser. Truth number one, learn from Paul. To write your plans in pencil. Traveling truth number two. Learn from Timothy to be genuinely concerned for the health of your local church. Verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your, notice this next word, welfare. Now who's he talking to? He's talking to the local church. That's the welfare of the local church. He's writing to a local church just like ours. I have no one who will be concerned for the welfare of the local church. The word like here, I have no one like him, represents a Greek word that appears only here in the New Testament. And a word that is woodenly translated into English, equal sold. In other words, Paul says, Timothy thinks like I think. He acts like I act. He reacts like I react. He was with me in Thessalonica. He was with me in Berea. He was with me in Corinth. He was with me in Ephesus. He was with me in Philippi, your hometown. And now he's with me in Rome. He operates like me. He evaluates like I evaluate. He assesses like I assess. He's my clone, my carbon, my protege. He's my equal soul. And Paul says, I have no one like him. <laughs> now that's crazy. That's crazy for me to hear those words come out of Paul's mouth. Paul's ministry team is like the Yankees of Christianity. So much talent. It's like the, the Duke Blue Devils or the Kentucky Wildcats of, of college basketball. Only first-round picks on his team. And, and you're saying, I have no one like him? Small group leaders, seminar leaders, disciplers. That's a great reminder of the fact that you may spend a lifetime in ministry. And when you come down to the end and find that you have, you have indeed been rich if you have produced one who is like you. Verse 21. For they all seek their own interests. 
not those of Jesus Christ. Here, Paul seems to be comparing Timothy as a pastor shepherd to all the other pastors and church leaders in Rome, which is a staggering implication. They were not free enough from their own self-interest to devote themselves to the welfare of the local church. And we, are, we aren't different. We childishly fixate on our own interest and ignore others' needs. On average, people spend 60% of their conversations talking about themselves. And that figure jumps to 80% when you include social media platforms like Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 80% of conversations talking about themselves. Researchers from Harvard brought 195 participants to simply talk about a variety of subjects while the researchers scanned their brain activity. And the, and the results of the study showed that talking about themselves lit up parts of the brain associated with motivation and reward. The same parts of the brain associated with pleasure, like food, or even drugs, like cocaine. In other words, we love talking about ourselves because it feels good. And it's actually producing a neurological buzz that feels pleasurable. And how do we avoid this trap? Well, I could tell you, don't insist on the finest accommodations. Don't insist on always getting your way. Stop talking about yourself. But that will just work temporarily. We need something with permanence. The Spirit of God has to do radical brain surgery. Our minds need to be transformed and renewed. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 talk about this. Timothy had brain surgery. He learned the art of putting others above himself. Have you? Timothy is thinking like this. What's... What's going to be for the best well-being of the local church at Philippi? That must come first. The local church comes before me. Give us more people who are committed in this way. Do you think this way about the local church? Do you think this way about this local church? Can you think of a decision that you made when you thought, you know, this would be this would be good for me personally, but I'm not sure it would be good for the church as a whole. Therefore, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do what's best for the church. Can you think of a time where you ever changed your mind about anything? And it might be as simple as whether you're going to go to a ball game or play or a weekend getaway and you decide, you know, it's, it's more important for me to be at the church because I'm part of the body. My wife told me about a conversation she had with a, a lady in our church who told her, there are Sunday mornings when I have a lot of things to do. And I'm pressed for time. And there are Sunday mornings I have a crazy headache. But I'm going to be at corporate gathering. Because I am hurting the body if I'm not there. If I'm gone, a hand is missing. Or a foot or ear is missing. I'm putting the interest of Jesus' body above my own. Have you ever thought that way? It's so anti-American culture 
It's so anti-individualism. Verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy wasn't merely a volunteer in an organization. He's Paul's son in the faith. And we have no indication that Paul had a biological son. But he had a spiritual one. And by evoking the father-son analogy, Paul tells the Philippians, Timothy's heart beats as mine does to see you all grow in Jesus, holding fast to and holding forth the gospel to a watching world and caring for each other in the family of faith. The word here, serve, has served with me in the gospel, is doulos. And you know what we do with doulos around here. It should be translated slave. He has slaved with me in the gospel. It doesn't say he has slaved under me. It says he has slaved with me. He's a fellow slave. Paul doesn't see himself as the master and Timothy as the slave. They slaved side by side. Verse 23. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Once my situation becomes stable, church, I'll send Timothy. Which means, of course, that Timothy will not be coming right away. And this news may have surprised the church or disappointed the church. But Timothy left a legacy of being genuinely concerned for the welfare of that local church. A member of our church asked me last Sunday on the way out. He says, is there... Are there any spots I can serve? I told him I would, I would think about it and ask some of our staff here, and I would, I would text them later and let them know. So later in the week, I texted him some options, some upfront options and some behind the scenes. One was cleaning the bathrooms between services. Not very glamorous. And this guy is always very well-dressed, very put together, very intelligent, very capable of doing any job in this church, including speaking. He texted back. He said, I'd be honored to clean the bathrooms between services. We need Timothys who aren't concerned about the spotlight, but who are genuinely concerned for the function and health of the local church. Traveling truth number three. Learn from Epaphroditus to take risks. To take risks. Verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother. Notice all these titles. My brother, my fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. The name Epaphroditus was a, a common name. It was, actually, it was actually drawn from a Greek god. Have you ever heard of the name uh, Aphrodite? She, she was a Greek mythical goddess. And, and Epaphroditus' family likely worshipped this goddess and named him after her. But now he's converted to Christ. What happens when Jesus transforms someone, when he takes someone who is an idol worshiper and then makes him a Christian? What happens then? Well, the text tells us he becomes a brother. Now, the term brother may not mean much to you if you grew up in a church where you heard it regularly. Often Christians call people brothers when they can't remember one another's names. 
But it's a miracle that we're brothers and sisters. Our identity has changed. God is our father and we are adopted siblings. Why do you feel closer to some people in our church than you do actually family members? God does that. Brothers, literally in the Greek, from the same womb, the same spiritual bloodline. But not just brothers. Fellow workers. Paul was the public upfront apostle. He was the face of the missionary team. He wrote books, received revelations from God, pioneered new areas for the gospel. His ministry was dramatic, dynamic, unforgettable, earth-shaking. Epaphroditus was a behind-the-scenes guy. He was a layman. He served in no public capacity. Did not shepherd a flock, did not take the gospel to unreached areas, did not receive a special revelation from God, wrote nothing. You may serve in an unnoticed, unrecognized place in the body of Christ. But don't get the impression that you don't have an important role to play in the church. You do. The church has been blessed throughout the centuries by unsung heroes in the shadows. Fellow worker. Notice Paul didn't, didn't assume some position of superiority. And, and these names are ascending in importance. Brother... More than that, fellow worker. More than that, fellow soldier. These two fought shoulder to shoulder in Rome. We've gone to war together. Spiritual war. I mean, you, you think there's a bond with people that have gone to physical war together? And there is. But there's nothing like the bond of people that have gone to spiritual war together. In fact, the word Paul uses here for soldier is the same word to describe the Roman soldiers to whom he happens to be chained at the wrist. Epaphroditus has proved himself with distinction as a soldier. So you have the three titles of honor and dignity. And now Paul gives us two titles of tenderness and devotion. Your messenger, your minister. First, your messenger. The church at Philippi knew that Paul was in Rome, 800 miles away, and they wanted to honor their founding pastor. And the church at Philippi needed someone to bring a bag of money to Paul in Rome to help him cover the expenses of house arrest. And they needed someone to stay and help care for Paul's needs. And so they asked the body, who's willing to travel 800 miles, mostly by foot, to bring money to Paul and then to stay and help. It's dangerous. It's risky. It will take a toll. It certainly will be perilous, dicey, and hazardous. Epaphroditus volunteers. He was their messenger. Then notice, secondly, he was their minister. The word minister here in the Greek, was, was a person in the ancient days in the Greek city-states who loved their city so much that at their own expense, they supported the great civic events. They might have supported their embassy or paid for the entire training of their Olympic champions or built a warship and paid the sailors. These men were incredible benefactors for their city. And if they were living in our culture, they would be honored at the Kennedy Center for Lifetime Achievement. Or given an honorary doctorate from some university. Or a medal of Congress. They would have an interstate or a boulevard named after them. 
or a battleship for that matter. They would own a key to the city. Paul says, you need to name a street after Epaphroditus. Give him a key to the city. Name a battleship after him. Congress, give him a medal. And the words of salt and pepper, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. I see you've heard that hymn. Verse 26. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Somehow, the church learned of Epaphroditus' illness. Perhaps he became ill on his way to Paul, on his way to Rome, and met someone traveling in the opposite direction back to Philippi, and they reported to the church, man, Epaphroditus is not doing well. He's nearly there, but he is not doing well. What was the sickness? Barclay says it was the notorious Roman fever, which sometimes swept the city like a scourge. Martin says it was a nervous disorder resulted from a stressful environment. Verse 27 said he nearly died. In other words, he didn't just pick up a little cold in Rome. He didn't just have some sort of allergic reaction to homemade Italian spaghetti. Maybe, maybe you've traveled to Honduras. We have some of our missionaries from Honduras here this morning. Maybe you've traveled to Honduras and, and you were not careful and you drank the water. Epaphroditus uh, is in a new place. I'm in a new place. He probably did what I did. He drank the water. A couple of days, he'll be fine. No. He's knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Scholars speculate that he could have been, that he could have contracted malaria or even the bubonic plague, both of which were frequent and untreatable in the Roman world. Paul does not describe symptoms except to say not once but three times the disease could well prove fatal for Epaphroditus. There was a news story released recently on CNN that said Epaphroditus had COVID-19. That's not true. That's not true. Again, my email is danielherbster at faithfamilychurch.com. Epaphroditus is, is not only sick. I mean, he's about to die, so I don't want to minimize that. But he's also mentally distressed, according to verse 26. It uses the word distressed. And some commentators, I don't like what they do with it, to be honest with you. They say he's homesick. He's homesick from, for some good Philippian cooking. He misses his wife. He misses his kids and friends. I, I, don't, I don't have any doubt that that's the case. But this is beyond that. Epaphroditus is distressed because his friends in Philippi are distressed about him. This is spiritual. Epaphroditus is the one who is sick. Yet... We don't read of any self-pity. Quite the opposite. He's not concerned about himself. He's concerned about the distress of the Philippians. And I must admit, this is a challenging example. When you get sick, uh, husbands, I, I know when you get a cold, it's, it's really death for you. But let me just talk to the, to the wives for a moment, the tough people in your marriage. Um, when you get sick, do you turn inward? Do you want to call your mom and have her to make some chicken noodle soup? Not Epaphroditus. How intensely Epaphroditus suffered mentally is seen only, is seen in the only time that this verb is used elsewhere in the Bible. It's used in Matthew 26 when Jesus says in the garden, My soul is deeply distressed, deeply grieved to the point of death. It's a very, very heavy distress. So the man's about to die. 
and is mentally distressed. Verse 27. Things turn around. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul says, I mean, the only reason he's alive is because God wanted him alive. We'd already picked out the casket and some hymns. People were bringing casseroles over. But then he recovered. And this prevented me from having wave upon wave of grief. Epaphroditus is now recovered and ready to make the long and risky trip back home to his local church at Philippi. And as soon as the ink dries on the letter that we're preaching through, Paul sends him. In today's world of speedy transcontinental air travel, we might not realize the stress of first century travel. The most direct route would be over land from Rome on the Via Pia to Brindisi on Italy's southwest coast. So that, that just that portion is over, 100 and, over 350 miles. A voyage across the Adriatic Sea, another 90 miles, would bring him to Dyrrhachium, the western point of the Via Ignatia. Then he would make a 360-mile trek eastward across Macedonia to Philippi. He would invest weeks in order to make this taxing and dangerous trip back over land and sea. And how's he going to be received? Paul says in verse 29, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Several New Testament scholars speculate, and I would throw my hat in the ring with them, that the Apostle Paul was actually anticipating some criticism back in Philippi, thinking that perhaps Epaphroditus cut short his mission and quit his task and abandoned Paul so that he could retreat home. I mean, it just got too hot for Epaphroditus in Rome. Hey, hey did you hear that Epaphroditus is back in town? I saw him at church on Sunday. So soon? Yeah. I wonder why. He probably couldn't take it. I guess he quit. Man, who would have thought? Why the emphasis on the word honor? Well, the emphasis is probably due to the fact that this culture based more on honor and shame, and our culture is, is not. The American culture isn't based on honor and shame. He has to go home sooner rather than later, and the church might think he, has, he was an embarrassment, not completing his task. And Paul wanted him to have a hero's welcome with medals, not a disgraceful entry with people throwing eggs at him. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, wrote about when our American soldiers returned from the unpopular Vietnam War. They, they called it the, the, first, it was the TV war. First war that was really covered on TV. You saw reality. When our soldiers returned from the unpopular Vietnam War that was fought a long way from home. Some even had eggs thrown on their faces. Kent Hughes says, and I quote, There were no outpourings of public appreciation and no parades because most people wanted to forget. America's corporate amnesia was a sad thing. And it took years for a proper monument to be erected for those who gave everything. 
And he continues here making the connection. A church like a culture that does not recognize the sacrifice of its own for the sake of the gospel makes a big mistake. And the wise apostle simply would not let it happen. End quote. Honor this man. Verse 30. This is the last one. For he nearly died for the work of Christ. Notice this next word. It's key. You may want to underline it. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The Greek word risking is paraboloni. It occurs only here in the New Testament. But elsewhere, it's used as a gambling term. You might say that Epaphroditus took a calculated risk. He's the gambler. You've heard the song Kenny Rogers. The gambler. No, we, we need more country music fans in this church. That is a spiritual weakness we have. But Kenny Rogers wrote the song, The Gambler. It'll change your life. You need to listen to it. Um, he wrote it about Epaphroditus, actually. No, uh, no, Epaphroditus is not gambling money. But gambling is life. And this term, paraboloni, this term for behind the word risking, later became a badge of honor for Christians. In the early church, there were a group of people who took up this term and called themselves the parabolonis, the gamblers. And in A.D. 252, a plague broke out in the city of Carthage. And the non-Christians were, were so frightened of the germs that were in the bodies of the dead that they literally somehow bagged them up and hurled them out of the city, not wanting to touch them for burial. Even you had non-Christians fleeing from dying family members for fear of catching the plague. Cyprian, a Christian bishop, gathered his congregation together and in a gracious act of human kindness took the plague-stricken bodies and buried them. And according to historians, they nursed the sick people, coming close enough to them to touch them in a plague-infested area, risking their lives to save some in the city. They were called the Paraboloni, the gamblers, a term which now granted great honor to those with reckless courage, literally risking their lives to serve another. Literally willing to throw away their lives for the sake of another. We need a church full of parabolonis, willing to risk their life for a cause bigger than themselves, willing to catch a plague to reach those who have a plague, Willing to have egg thrown on their faces to serve a cause bigger than themselves. In our church, we have some gamblers. Down the street, they're opening a $150 million horse track and casino. And when I say in our church there are some gamblers, I'm not talking about those that gamble at, at a table. I'm talking about those who gamble for the cause of Christ. In our church every week, there are women who stand outside the abortion clinic and talk and beg to women walking in and, and begging them to choose life instead of death. And each week, by God's grace, these women in our church talk other women out of abortion, risking egg on their face. Some of you will leave us, and you'll go to unreached people groups around the world, headhunters, jungle dwellers, and people will say to you, it's dangerous, it's risky, it will take a toll, it certainly will be perilous, dicey, and hazardous. They're not just going to throw egg on your face. 
They will cut your face off. And then Kenny Rogers will say to you, you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. And old Kenny whispers, now's the time to run. Don't gamble here. And then you'll take a step back and you'll look at the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ. And the gambler in you will come out and risk all for the cause of Christ. I'm so thankful for all the Pauls that God has brought to our church. You, re- you realize that it's not uncommon for us to have people watch our services online. Watch our panel discussions after the service that goes online every day at 4. To watch those two things and they'll move their membership to this church. And I'll sit across from them and I'll say, why are you coming here? And they'll say, to sit under the leadership of these Pauls. To sit under the leadership of these men. Just had it happen two weeks ago. I want my family under the leadership of these men, these Pauls. So grateful for the Pauls that God has put in our church. And I'm thankful for the Timothys that fill our church. Men and women who are willing to be inconvenienced for the cause of Christ. And I'm also grateful to the Epaphroditus who sit in our church. People willing to take risk. Risking their lives. Little Diedrich Bonhoeffers. The great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, said, unless there's an element of extreme risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. I'm so sick of Christians playing it safe. Take a risk. What are you attempting for God right now that if he doesn't come through, it will be an utter disaster? Non-Christian, I want to circle back around to you. I started with you, I'll end with you. Why aren't any of these people in the text and any of these people seated around you afraid of having egg on their faces? Why aren't they bowing to the culture? That's simple. Because we only bow to Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.